Good morning. As Brennan said, my name is Phil Ling. I will be your captain today. So put up your trays. Um, that's what I hear every day because I get on planes and fly. Although the last couple of years have been weird. Uh, two and a half million Delta miles. Two and a half million Delta miles. Been everywhere. And mine are domestic, so I do it the hard way. Go to a place like Peoria. It's not like I jump on a plane. Just go to Japan and crack up a bunch of miles. So this last two years of coming out of COVID, shutdowns, parts of the country more shut than other parts of the country, experiencing all that, it's been crazy. I work with churches, worked with a thousand churches in the last 20 years and all over the country and a little bit out of the country. But church is one of those weird institutions deemed non-essential for a long period of time, not able to meet. Even those when they did meet were had great restrictions. So it affects a lot of what we've done for the last couple of years. I miss new life. Last time I didn't come last fall, I was Puxatani Phil and saw my shadow and decided I was not going out anywhere. But I'm glad to be back. And I thought it was time to reset. It's like, what, what should we be focusing on coming out of this? This has been a weird time. We've gone through other extreme pressure points as a country before. 9-11, the financial meltdown in 08, but not something like this that even stopped our ability to gather for periods of time. And so as believers, not just talking to us institutionally as a church, but as believers, maybe we can see, see what God's saying to us, how we refocus, how we have a new purpose, a new direction, and how we can be distinctive to the world so that they look at not just a group of people to come to a particular building on Sunday mornings and get together and say, well, that's church, but Christians, how are you unique? How are you distinctive? And so we're going to look at Colossians. Colossians, you've got your Bibles, open up to Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. I'm going to use the message series. The message, uh, Eugene Peterson put that together. It's conversational. It's very accurate to the original language, but it's very conversational in tone. And we're going to look at the first several verses of that. Colossians chapter 3, starting with verse 1. So if you're serious about living this new resurrection life with Christ, act like it. Pursue the things over which Christ presides. Don't shuffle along ice to the ground absorbed with the things right in front of you. Look up. And be alert to what is going on around Christ. That's where the action is. See things from his perspective. Your old life is dead. Your new life, which is your real life, even though invisible to spectators, is, what is with Christ and God. He is your life. When Christ, your real life, remember, shows up again on this earth, you'll show up too to the real you, the glorious you. Meanwhile, be content with the obscurity like Christ. And that means killing off everything connected with that way of death, sexual promiscuity, impurity, lust, doing whatever you feel like whenever you feel like it, grabbing whatever attracts your fancy. That's a life shaped by things and feelings instead of by God. It is because of this kind of thing that God is about to explode in anger. It wasn't long ago that you were doing all that stuff and not knowing any better, but now you know better. So make sure it's all gone for good. Bad temper, irritability, meanness, profanity, dirty talk. Don't lie to one another. You're done with that old life. 
And it's like a filthy set of ill-fitting clothes you've stripped off and put in the fire, and now you're dressed in a new wardrobe. Every item of your new way of life is custom-made by the Creator with His label on it. All the old fashions are now obsolete. Words like Jewish, non-Jewish, religious, irreligious, insider, outsider, uncivilized, uncouth, slave, free, mean nothing. For now, on everyone is defined by Christ, everyone is included in Christ. Would you pray with me? God, thank you for just the opportunity to gather together with believers. I, we don't take that for granted anymore. To be encouraged by that, to worship together in a a large number and realize we're not alone in this whole pursuit. For the next few minutes, I pray that you would just kind of guide us through your word, help us to see what Paul was saying to this church in Colossae so long ago and what what ramification that has for us today, and be guided by your spirit through that whole process. And once we leave this place, when we're not with a large group, when we're by ourselves, and it's easy to be frightened or discouraged or eyes down, help us to lift our heads and have a spiritual focus, a spiritual direction, and to feel your guidance and your strength. It's in Jesus' name, amen. I think we're going to be affected by this. I just did a podcast with a, a, a group this past week, and one of the questions they asked was as I work with churches, what am I seeing and what's post-COVID and some of the ramifications of what we've experienced. And like I said, it's different. You know, we work with churches from Southern California to New York and everything in between. And where you are is, is greatly um, impacted by the uniquenesses of those areas. But there's going to be an impact. Uh, there's a, a group we work with in Philadelphia that in their denomination, they've already identified 26 churches in that area that will never reopen after COVID. That it was kind of the last nail. They've already were, were having difficulty, and that was the, what put them out. But I don't think it's just collectively as churches what's going to be different and how we are affected, but individually. Mental health, uh, not just with adults, but with kids. The isolation, the difficulties that go with that, um, the distance learning, uh, people working remotely, the good things that come with that and the bad things that come with that that's all going to have a kind of a spiral, a a snowball effect. So as believers, I think it's appropriate for us to spend just a few minutes and kind of go back and say, all right, what if we refocus? What is it we are supposed to be able to do as believers that causes us to be distinctive to the world and also to be able to have the strength to endure whatever it is that we experience? That's maybe easier said than done. But I believe it starts internally, not externally. So the first one I want you to see, and this is this, look at verse 1. Develop a new mindset. So if you're serious about living this new resurrection life with Christ, act like it. Pursue the things over which Christ presides. Don't shuffle along, eyes to the ground, absorb the things right in front of you. Look up, be alert to what is going on around Christ. That's where the action is. See things from his perspective. I, now, be, be with me on this. It's a little bit of a subtle sw- s- switch. I think in, a, in Christian world, and especially in religious world, use that big term, that when we talk about being a believer, talk about being a Christian, we often talk about a behavior. And that's okay. We'll address that in a few minutes too. But you don't start your new life by saying, let me just change my behavior, I have to change my mindset of why I want to change my behavior. Otherwise, there's no lasting effect. 
So we can join the Marine Corps. They'll put us through boot camp, and they will change our behavior for a period of time. You and I can join some goofy cult, and they have all kinds of weird rules. And for a period of time, maybe we will change behavior. But once we're out of that pressure, once we're out of that circumstance, if there's not been a mindset change, then the behavior reverts back. It's not going to be locked in place. So the new mindset is a new way to look at life. Otherwise, I will keep doing what I've always done. There was a book at the end of the 1800s, a British book, and it was called No Hands to Raise. It's a unique story about a pickpocket. And in old English law, if you were caught stealing, they could remove your hand. And if you were caught stealing a second time, other hand. In this book written about this pickpocket, no hands to raise, hence you figured it out, caught once, lost a hand, caught second time, lost a hand, caught the third time trying to steal with his teeth. Why? There was no mindset change. It was behavioral change. It was just that I'm going to put pressure on you and punish you for what you did, but not any kind of an understanding of why you shouldn't do that. What's the difference? It's what I take in that causes the behavioral change. What am I feeding into my life? And I think that's, the, that's the, the key. So what is it that we feed into our lives? I look to see what the best-selling books are right now, just of any genre, all the best-selling books, and I put them into categories just to kind of see, okay, what, what's best-selling? During COVID especially, books and online uh, shows about how to cook. Huge. Right behind it, can you guess? How to lose weight. <laughs> I thought that was interesting. I guess we were good at the cooking part. And then there are best-selling books on investing in tough times and, you know, budgeting, and there are biographies that are selling well. Very little with a spiritual dimension. Now, none of those things are bad necessarily, but if it's the focus, I'm only paying attention to the physical and I'm not paying attention and feeding into my life anything on a spiritual depth, then it's probably not going to change. What we value and put into our lives is what has the effect long-term. It's the balance of life. William Barclay was an old Anglican writer, and he says this, the Christian has a new set of proportions, things which the world thought important he will no longer worry about. Ambitions which dominated the world will be powerless to touch him. He will go on doing the work of the world and using the things of the world, but he will use them in a different way. He will, for instance, set giving above getting, serving above ruling, forgiving above avenging. The Christian will see things not as they appear to men, but as they appear to God. His standard of value will be God's standard and not the standards of men. So, Colossians chapter 3, verse 4, when Christ, your life, remember, shows up again on this earth, you'll show up to the real glorious you. What's that translation, original language? It says, when Christ shows up, it says, that which you come alive to, you show up. So, what I feed into my life changes my mindset, which will eventually also have an effect on, behavior, on my behavior. But what is it that I come alive to? What is it that it hits my button? That's something I, I, this, this is like, I can remember, funny little example. When my niece Paige was younger, 
and she lives in Seattle. And my wife is a great gift buyer. And she always wanted to give Paige good Christmas gifts because Paige's birthday is the 26th of December. And so it's like, okay, she's going to, everybody's going to just double dip on her, you know, for the rest of her life. You get one gift, Christmas and birthday. And George always wanted to make sure she gave her two. But she always tried to do a lot of research and figure out, okay, what is it that Paige might come alive to? I remember one year it was Mrs. Potato Head. It was like, came alive to that, putting the eyes in the wrong spot, you know, all that kind of stuff. One year it was a princess outfit. And my sister sent pictures of Paige riding her bicycle with her helmet on in a princess outfit. And she wouldn't take it off. It's that, that which you come alive to. I was preaching in, in Seattle and I had this great, this, this epiphany, this, this brainstorm. I knew it was going to be brilliant because it was just a brilliant idea. And uh, Barney the Purple Dinosaur was big. He was big for 16 years. He's still on, but it's reruns now. But Bar- Barney the Purple Dinosaur was big. So I arranged for Barney to come to church. So all four services, we're going to have Barney in the children's area. I thought this would be cool. I mean, it, we're bringing Barney. Barney is going to roam around and the kids are going to come alive to him. I was right on that point. They did come alive to him, not the way I wanted. They loved Barney on a screen, six foot in the room, scared to death of him. And they started going ballistic. Teachers put up on their doors outlines of Barney with a red circle and a slash to keep Barney away because the kids were scared to death of Barney. The worst story that came out, Frank Simmons, who was in charge of all our usher groups for all the services, he came to get everything ready that morning. And so it was before church and he had his little boy, Michael, with him. And Michael saw Barney early and Michael started going nuts, crazy, scared to death. Frank's trying to figure out how he can get stuff done with Michael attached to his hip. He finally says, okay, I got to find a safe place. So he takes Michael and he goes to the area that we had little cubes for if you're going to be baptized, little changing areas for baptism. And he puts Michael in one of those little cubes, says, you're going to be safe here. You just hang out here. I'll come back and get you. Barney's not going to bother you. You'll be okay. So he's whimpering. Frank goes on to do his job. A few minutes later, the door to the cube opens. Guess who? It's Barney, because that's where Barney changes to. He opens the door. Michael goes bananas, shrieking. You can hear it all through the building. The guy that is Barney, I don't want to ruin it for you. It's not a real dinosaur. The guy that is Barney decides to take off his head so he can help Michael. So now Michael thinks that Barney has eaten someone. (laughs) That which you come alive to. Now, the kids came alive to Barney, not the way that I wanted them to, but they did come alive. So what is it? What are we going to come alive to? It's what we feed ourselves. What I take in is what directs my life, my behavior, my thought patterns. It's my mindset because of what I pour into my life. Craig Massey says it this way, two natures beat within my breast. The one is foul, the one is blessed. The one I love, the one I hate, but the one I feed will dominate. So for a new mindset, there's got to be what I bring into my lives. Verse 10, now you're dressed in a new wardrobe. Every item of your new way of life is custom made by the creator with his label on it. Did you know, first century church, that there is historical evidence that when you became a Christian and were baptized, that they would give you a new set of clothes that usually was white. So you came up, You're a new person, a new creature because of this new beginning, and you have new clothes that's white, which makes you distinctive. People can notice you in the community. Interesting. Look at two. A new, develop a new lifestyle. Contrast 
the world's view lifestyle versus ours. I broke it down into a couple different categories. Number one, I think the world looks at self-indulgence. Christians should be driven by self-control. Self-indulgence, self-control. Verse 5, 4 and 5. And your old life is dread, your new life is dead. Your new life, which is your real life, even though invisible to spectators, is with Christ and God. He is your life. When Christ, your real life, remember, shows up again on this earth, you'll show up too. The real you, the glorious you. And that means killing off everything connected with the way of death. Sexual promiscuity, impurity, lust, doing whatever you feel like whenever you feel like it and grabbing whatever attracts your fancy. That's a life shaped by things and feelings instead of by God. It is that idea of self-indulgence versus self-control. I often think, even euphemistically, when we say, when you ask somebody if they're a Christian, often we'll say, are you a believer? That's nothing wrong with that. But maybe we should say, are you a follower? Because there is this uniqueness that we have of being able to say, I believe, but when you look at my life, you really don't see me any differently than anyone else, so am I really following? Years ago, I uh, had a lady come see me for counseling. I'm a horrible counselor, not a good idea. Um, I just don't have patience. And uh, she, very distraught, um, told me her, her story very quickly. She had a 13, 14-year-old daughter that, as is wont to happen from time to time, girls often progress physically quicker than boys. And so she has developed and all the older boys are noticing her and she's hanging around with older boys. And the mom says, it's a train wreck. It's going to be a train wreck. I can't get her to listen to me. What do I do? I agreed with her. I mean, none of that was good. But the more she talked and more I listened and unpacked, the more I realized she has issues too. So as she shared very readily, she has three children from three different men And she's living with a fourth man who she says she does not love. The reason she's there, it was a good living situation. And so what I tried to explain as lovingly as possible is that you have created the ability in your mind to compartmentalize things. This is what I believe. This is what I think I should believe. This is what I actually do. Your 13, 14-year-old daughter can't do that. She sees And then you say what she should do, and she sees conflict and can't figure out how to put those in boxes. Now, fast forward about a year and a half later, I was in this this outdoor eating area by a bunch of shops and stuff. You know how they have those. And I'm sitting at a table, I'm eating lunch, and this lady comes up to me and just starts talking to me like she knows me. I can't, I don't recognize her. I don't know, have any stinking idea who she is. And she's just talking away to me. And... I, have you ever done this where somebody's talking and you don't know who they are and act like they know who you are? And so all I'm doing, I'm not really listening to her. I'm just trying names on her and trying to find one that'll fit. And none of the names are working. And then after a few minutes, it hits me. Oh, it's this lady. Been a year and a half. She sits down at my table. I don't invite her. She just sits down at my table and she is just haggard. And so what's happened is the train wreck has happened. And her little girl five days earlier ran away. And for five days, she has not known where her daughter is. For three days, she hasn't slept. And she's walking around public areas like this shopping area, just hoping she runs into her. A new mindset has to lead to a new lifestyle, one of self-control versus self-indulgence. Second, 
I think the way that we break down our lifestyle is one of greed according to the Scripture versus generosity. In verse 5, it says that it's a… verse 5 said it's, it's idolatry, the idea of greed. What is greed? Greed's not an amount. Greed's not like if you have this much, you're greedy. If you accumulated this much, you're greedy. That's not it. It's the purpose and the focus of how you view wealth how much it drives you versus you using it. And the world seems to believe, and I think we fall in the same category, we, we fall into the belief system, that your value is determined by what you have. Position, income, accumulation of, of things, that's what gives you value. And God says, no, that does not give you value. There's nothing wrong with having that and using that, but what's dictated is your purpose. I was reading a story, a fascinating story. It was a business interview with Tom Monahan. Uh, Tom's an older fellow now. Uh, he's in his mid-80s. Uh, but he and his brother in 1959 founded Domino's Pizza, $3,000. Invested and opened up a little pizza place, and it grew into Domino's. Uh, when he started making money, and, and became what you and I would say is very wealthy, he did things he wanted to do. He accumulated a collection of classic cars because he'd always wanted to do that. And then he got to do the pinnacle, which he was a baseball fan. He got to buy his home team, the Detroit Tigers. He bought a baseball team. And he said, and this interview was with him because he has just sold the team and he was divesting of a lot of his investments. And they were wondering why. I, this had nothing to do with the story, but I thought it was fascinating. So Domino's guy sells the Detroit Tigers to who? Little Caesars guy. So now Little Caesars owns, I, I don't know, Pizza Hut's buying it next. I don't know how that works. But the interview with him, he, a friend had given him a book by C.S. Lewis called Mere Christianity. And he read the book and he thought, there could be a new direction for my life. There could be a new purpose how I could use what God has blessed me with. For the last 20 years, I'm not telling you go do this. I thought it was interesting. For the last 20 years, where has his money and his attention been? He started a private Catholic university in Florida and has built a university. I thought, well, that's interesting. See, there's nothing wrong with owning dominoes. There's nothing wrong with having a baseball team. It's what's the focus. What is your, your, your purpose to use those things? Greed versus generosity. And then look at third, a new speech pattern. This is tough. A new speech pattern. Jesus says, out of the abundance of our heart, the mouth speaks. So... How do Christians speak differently than others? Verse 8, but you know better now, so make sure it's all gone for good. Bad temper, irritability, meanness, profanity, dirty talk. So I broke it down to two different categories. As believers, when we're trying to, what's our speech pattern going to be? Number one, no slander. Slander is abusive speech where we use our speech to destroy, not build up. Maybe your grandparents told you as a little kid, you don't have something good to say, don't say anything at all. So let's take abusive talk and slander out of our vocabulary. And then second, to speak truth. That's the tough part. Christians should be the group that lovingly tells the truth. And when we speak the truth, it means we are also not silent when we need to speak up. Verse 9, don't lie to one another. 
You've done with that old life. It's like a filthy set of ill-fitting clothes you stripped off and put in the fire, and now you're dressed in a new wardrobe. Isn't that, isn't that brilliant? I mean, the idea that what we used to be was we would say whatever was necessary at the moment for us to get out of any particular circumstance, regardless if it was right or it was wrong. Look at the news. I used to say pick up a newspaper. When has done that in a long time? Look at the news. And there's always a story almost every day of somebody, whether it's a celebrity, a politician, a sports individual, whoever it is, and they're backpedaling for something they have said that has become known to be untrue. And they'll use the euphemism, well, they misspoke. Or maybe it was, it's not exactly what they were trying to say. Instead of owning it and saying, I lied. As Christians, our job is to be known as uh, uh, truth speakers. The scripture says all the way through when describing Satan, Satan is the father of lies. So the more that we are deceitful, the closer we get to him. The more that we are truth tellers, the closer we get to Christ. J. Vernon McGee was an old TV, or not TV, a radio preacher. He was in Southern California, but he sounds like from West Virginia. He was a hoot, Um, but really good teacher. And he tells a story of a little boy that just lied all the time. And his mother could not break the little boy of lying. If you ever had one of those kids, you know, he's trying to break the whoppers. And, and this kid would always tell a whopper. And the mom had tried everything she could. And one day, the little boy came up to mom all excited. And she says, he says, mom, there is a lion in our backyard. And mom rolled her eyes and was like, okay, you know you're lying. The only lion is you lying. There is, there's no lion in our backyard. And I've told you about this and about not telling the truth. And the little boy would not back down. No, mom, there is a lion in our backyard. And eventually she did what you and I would do. She says, all right, here's the deal. I'm going to go look. But if not, it's not a lion, you're in trouble. Knowing full well there's no lion. She goes to the backyard, looks outside. And there in the backyard is a large, fluffy dog. And she said, all right. I told you, you lied. You don't know how much you disappoint me when you lie, and even more importantly, how much you disappoint God when you lie. Here's what I want you to do. Go to your bedroom, and I want you to think about what you've done, and I want you, before you come down, you pray to God, and you just apologize, repent. Say, God, I am sorry I lied again. So he did. After a few minutes, he comes down. He's contrite. The mother says, did you uh, think about what you did? Yes, I did. Did you pray to God and ask forgiveness for what you did? Yes, ma'am, I did. And she's feeling a little guilty for being so heavy, you know, on it. And just about that time, little boy says, Mom, God told me the first time he saw it, he thought it was a lion too. (laughs) It's cute when it's a kid. It's like, okay, I mean, how can you be mad at the kid? You know, he's telling a whopper, a fluffy dog in his mind, maybe it looked like a lion. But what if it's not that? I mean, are you known as the person that tells the truth even if it costs you. Golf is a weird sport. I I play golf. I like golf. I've shot bad scores on courses all over the country. You call your own fouls. If you mess up, you raise your hand. I messed up. Because it's not like they can be watched everywhere. Even on a, a national tournament, they're not at every hole with every camera watching everyone. And so you have to call your own fouls. And some are better than that and others, but every now and then there's a story. So this year, Victor Hovland, Victor's a young player from Norway. He went to college at Oklahoma State, I believe, and a great young player, but he's playing in a tournament this year, and he didn't do that great. It's Thursday, you know, you got to do really well on Thursday and Friday so you can make the cut 
to be there for the weekend. That's how golf works. He didn't do so well on Thursday. He's a little discouraged. He's walking to his car, his rental car in the parking lot, and his phone rings, and it's his mother in Norway. She watched him play from Norway. Isn't that cool? And she's talking to him, you know, cheering him up a little bit, and, you know, what'd you think, and how you doing? And then she says, now, how much of a penalty did they give you for that? And she names a hole. And he says, what are you talking about? She noticed something on television from Norway that he didn't catch, but he marked his ball on the green the wrong side as he moved it for somebody else to be able to hit their ball. And when it went back to put his ball back, he marked it the other direction, which is a penalty. And if you sign your card, which he did, with an incorrect score because you didn't have the penalty marked, you're disqualified. So he got off the phone with his mom, went back inside, and he said, got to tell you that on such and such hole, I, my mom said, <laughs> you know, I, I did such and such. And they ended up giving him a two-stroke penalty, didn't disqualify him, but it was enough that it cost him that he didn't make the cut that weekend. But you can say, yeah, but he's a great golfer, and I mean, you know, that's an interesting story, and he went on. Integrity is when you do and say the correct thing, the right thing, the honest thing, when you don't think there's any repercussions, when there's no one watching. Years ago, I got to do something as an adult that I'd always wanted to do, and that is, you know, kind of go backwards in time. When I was growing up in Ohio, my first car that I got my nickels together from a paper route, literally, and bought for $400 was a 65 Mustang. And, you know, forever I've watched the values of those go up when they're, wish I'd have kept that stupid thing. So as an adult, I looked around and I finally found one that I could buy. And it was, you know, had some promise to it. It wasn't restored completely or anything like that. But it, I thought it was cool. So it was a private cell. I bought it. And we didn't even keep it that long. My wife had a hang up. It smelled like gas when you drove and she thought that was bad. I'm thinking, we don't smoke. What's the big deal? But anyway, so we didn't keep it that long. But when I bought it, because it's private sale, I go to the courthouse with the guy to transfer the title. And, you know, you pay tax based upon how much you paid for the car. And there's no Kelly Blue Book for this thing on its value. It's just whatever it is. So when it came time to pay the tax, the lady looked at the guy selling it and said, how much did you sell the car for? This is somebody I do not know. I just met him. And he looks at me and gives me one of those looks like, what do you want to say? You can say whatever you want, and it will dictate how much tax you pay. So being the good Christian pastor that I am, I said, well, let me think about it. No, that's not true. I told the truth. Truth speaking, integrity is not just big things. It's not just national TV and maybe somebody saw me. It's when nobody sees and when there's probably not going to be a repercussion for it. But here's what I will leave you with. We can adopt new behavior, new mindset. We can have new lifestyle, speech patterns. And we will be distinctive. And it can be taxing. Mark Twain says the, the worst thing in the world is a good example. And that can be irritating. And people disappoint you. And you'll be let down, even by other Christians. And if you're not careful, you'll get discouraged and you'll lose your focus. Eugene Peterson that did the Message Bible is a writer, and he also did a book on Jeremiah from the Old Testament, the prophet Jeremiah. And he focuses in on chapter 12, Jeremiah, where Jeremiah, God's man, prophet, is discouraged by life. And he's feeling sorry for himself, and he's whining to God. 
God, these people, nobody listens. And nobody's doing what's good except for me. And I'm not, you know, it's, it's just getting so heavy to carry this burden. I'm trying to do the right thing. And God does not respond to Jeremiah by patting him on the back, encouraging him. Instead, he's hard on him. He says, Jeremiah, seriously, if you're going to lose focus and realize your strength doesn't come from people, it comes from me. If that's going to get you down where you can't even walk with men, how are you going to run with horses? And the metaphor is that to be the man, the woman that God's called you to be spiritually, to be the giant, to run with horses, you're going to have to focus on God and no matter what's happening around you, not lose focus and become discouraged to the point where you're just walking along trying to survive with men. I believe our world needs Christians with distinct lives and new focus. It's not programs. It's not how we do church. It's us being different. Would you pray with me? Dear God, I thank you for just being able to be here. It's a blessing. I thank you for everybody that took the time. I mean, we're, everybody's busy, and, and there's so many different things that they can do with their lives and their Sunday mornings, but they decide to come together and to worship and to be encouraged by other believers. I pray that we don't become overwhelmed with how tough things are going to be, but realize you promised that, A, if we feed upon your word, it never comes back empty, that it always takes root and it always starts to grow, and that you also promised your spirit guides and strengthens us. So it's not by our own strength, our own might, that we might be able to lead, live these distinctive lives, but it's you living through us. Help us to be that example to the world. Not the one that says, here's your list of do's and don'ts, but let me tell you why I live my life this way. And let me show you the example of my life based upon this new mindset, which leads to this new behavior and speech pattern. And that might be the encouragement where somebody says, tell me more of how you're able to run with horses when it's so easy to be discouraged. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.